Welcome to our Sunday morning family gathering. You know, the last sermon I delivered, I focused on gratitude. And today I'm going to focus on the next step, looking to a successful year for New Hope Chapel. So our quest for joy and for victory continues. And so the title of my sermon this morning is Teamwork. My text is Psalm 133, verses 1 to 3. Interesting, there's only three verses in that Psalm 133. And of course, it's printed in the handout in the New King James for your review, as well as having an outline printed there for your easy reference. So walk with me, as I always do, through Psalm 1914. So this morning, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Amen? You know, on January the 19th, 2020, three years ago, I preached on Psalm 133, and the theme then was unity, as is the theme this morning. However, in 2020, my title was actually Porcupines. And I shared back then that because a full-grown porcupine has over 30,000 quills and it can drive them into, into others. And so it went without saying that porcupines are not regarded as the most lovable, huggable animals. Porcupines usually handle relationships in one of two ways. They withdraw or they attack that makes relationship building pretty difficult for those in the body who are porcupines. I preached in 2020 that nine out of 10 problems in the church are relational. Something happens a porcupine doesn't like or understands and poof, they disappear. Others create such drama, difficulty and division that you wish they would disappear. This morning, I will look at unity, but from a theological and doctrinal perspective. It may seem academic, but it's absolutely necessary. And what I want to talk to you about this morning is something that God desperately wants. He desires this for his people. It is one thing that Satan fears and works day and night to undo. It is something for which Jesus himself prayed for just prior to going to the cross. It is the one thing that the Bible says will convince people that the church has something the world does not. It's one thing that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is meant to accomplish. So what am I talking about? This morning I will be talking about unity. And when I speak about unity, let's make it clear that I'm not talking about union. Union is when you are bonded with someone with whom you have no common bond. I'm not talking about uniformity. That's where everybody looks alike and thinks alike. I'm not even speaking of unanimity, which is where everybody always agrees on everything. Contrary to what some may think, I don't expect either uniformity or unanimity always in this church. But what I do want is what pleases God and what, what God desires and that there must have, we must have unity. 
And by unity, I mean a oneness of heart, a similarity of purpose, and an agreement on truth. See, I believe Satan's strategy is to defeat the church. It's to divide and to conquer. But the devil is no match for a united church, no matter how small that church may be. But regardless of how large your church may be, how many members you may have, how big your budget is, how many buildings you own, it can still be defeated member by member by Satan. Because you've got to remember that Satan's motive is division. Satan's method is deception. Satan's mission is destruction. He wants to deceive us so that he might divide us and therefore destroy us. But Satan cannot defeat a united church because there's no place where he can attack the body. Every plank is covered. Every side is protected. The gates of hell cannot prevail against the church that is united in the Lord Jesus Christ. But one by one, divided against each other, any of us and all of us can be picked off by his fiery darts. You know, solaced He was a Roman historian. He said this, By unity, the smallest states thrive. By discord, the greatest are destroyed. You know, our national model, as you know, is e pluribus unum, which means out of the many, one. I want to tell you that if we're going to be victorious as a church and accomplish all that God wants us to accomplish and be all that God wants us to be, we must come together. We must work together. And we must walk together. So I'm going to talk to you today about the vastly important subject of unity. First in your outline, consider the beauty of unity. You know, David begins with a simple word. Behold. Now, that word behold in the Hebrew language would be the same as if we were saying, stop, look, listen. See, David is telling us that fellowship that is united in a people that are one is a sight to behold. In fact, I don't believe there is a more beautiful sight on the earth than when God's people are truly united under the banner of the Lord Jesus Christ and under the umbrella of His authority. Perhaps the most beautiful prayer ever prayed in history is when Jesus prayed for the church in the 17th chapter of John, and this is what He prayed for in verses 20 and 21. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in Me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. The Lord Jesus prayed that we would be one. And incidentally, the literal translation of Psalm 133, verse 1, is this. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together, even as one You know, Jesus said we are to be one just as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are one. And the Trinity is not just a triunity. The Trinity is not three gods. It is one God in three persons. It is a perfect unity. Unity is the very nature, the very essence of God. And that is why disharmony and disunity grieves God and His Holy Spirit. It's against His very nature. And one thing the Holy Spirit will not and cannot do 
and that is do work in the divided church. You know, so often we pray to Jesus to answer our prayers, but there's one way where we could be an answer to his, and that is by being united, by being one. And then Jesus goes on to say in John 17, 22, I and them, and you and me, and, and they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me, and I love them as you have loved me. You know, in a world of political, national, philosophical, and theological division, God is glorified, magnified, and satisfied when his children are unified. You know, you've heard it said, there is strength in numbers. Well, that really isn't true. There's only strength in numbers if those numbers are unified. You know, many bricks are worthless, but many bricks together can make a wall. Many shingles by themselves are absolutely worthless unless they're taken together for a purpose to make a roof. And one link alone is absolutely worthless, but many links joined together can make a chain. Now, perhaps some of you have been to California, and you have seen these gigantic, huge redwood trees. You know, they're some of the most amazing trees in all of the world. And as a matter of fact, they are the largest living things on earth and the tallest trees on this planet. Some of them are 300 feet tall and over 2,500 years old. And the inside of some of the trunks are so large that three or four people can stand inside of them. Now you would think <clears throat> that a tree this large must have a tremendous root system that reaches down hundreds of feet into the earth, but not so. The redwoods have a very shallow root system Unlike, for example, the palm tree, whose tap root goes down into the ground as deep as the tree is tall. In other words, <clears throat> a 30-foot palm tree has a 30-foot tap root into the ground. The redwood has no tap root at all. And that is why you never see a redwood standing alone. Never. They're always in clusters, in groups, and in groves. And do you know why the might of the redwood tree is not in itself? The strength of its, the, the secret of its strength is this. For every foot in height, the redwood tree sends its roots not down, but three times that distance out. In other words, if a tree is 300 feet tall, its roots go out 900 feet out. Not on top of the soil, but just a few feet underneath. If you could look underground, you would find that all the roots of all those trees are intertwined and intertwisted so that one tree is not holding itself. For every tree is holding every other tree. These trees are literally locked into each other so there is no way that one tree can fall down. It's held up by the strength of the other trees. And so the real secret of the strength of a country, of a state, of a community, of a church, the reason why we are to be so united is, as Jesus said in John 17, 21, that the world may believe that you have sent me. You know, the greatest advertisement for the gospel of Jesus Christ 
is not a billboard, a newspaper advertisement, a television program. The greatest advertisement for the gospel of Jesus Christ is a church that is unified in the Holy Spirit. Second in your outline, the basis of unity. Somebody said, coming together is the beginning, keeping together is progress, but working together is success. Well, why should we come together? Why should we work together? How can we walk together? What is the basis of unity in the church? May I suggest three things that should form the source of our unity. First of all, may your online consider the lordship of God's Son. Now, this psalm was primarily addressed to brethren. Brethren here refers to the people of God. Now, in order to be brothers, you've got to have the same father. If you have the same father, you must be in the same family. And what is true in the physical realm is also true in the spiritual realm. So to be brothers in the spiritual sense, you must have God as your father. And if God is your father, then you are in the family of God. And you, but you must be born into the family of God. And to be born into the family of God, you've got to be born again. In 1 John 1.12 it says, But as many as received Jesus, to them God gave the right to become children of God. Now you see, faith puts you in the family of God. And therefore, if you have not received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are not in God's family. And if you're not in God's family, God is not your Father. And if God is not your Father, and He is my Father, then we cannot be brothers. So what am I saying? If Jesus is not your Lord, then God is not your Father, because you cannot have God without Jesus. 1 John 2, 23 states, Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Listen, the true basis of any unity is the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's why a believer should not marry an unbeliever. The goal of marriage is perfect union, but a Christian cannot have perfect union with a non-Christian. You can have union, but you cannot have unity. 2 Corinthians 6.14 states, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness? I say again, the basis for a true, lasting, real, genuine Christianity is the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's why you can have more fellowship with a conservative Presbyterian who loves the Lord Jesus and believes the Bible that we can with a liberal Southern Baptist who denies the deity of Jesus and denies the inspiration of the Bible. Listen, as long as we will submit ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, we will be a unified church. The Lordship of Jesus Christ is not just the basis of unity, it is the bond of unity. But the second thing in your outline to consider that will bring us together is the life of God's Spirit. And I want you to notice the comparison that David makes. He compares 
unity to the precious oil upon the head running down the beard of the beard of Aaron. Why is unity like oil? Well, remember, oil is the symbol of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not only the source of our anointing, he is the source of our unity. This oil that David spoke of was the anointing oil used on Aaron, the high priest of Israel, who, by the way, is a picture of our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Aaron was charged with the responsibility of entering into the Holy of Holies, but before he could enter in, he would be anointed with this fragrant oil. He was never to enter God's presence with, with the odor of the flesh clinging to him. He had to be washed and anointed so that the fragrance of God's spirit would be clinging to him. Do you know that God gave a special recipe for this oil? It was to be made up of myrrh, synonym, sweet calamus, and cassia. This mixture was then blended with olive oil. And the Lord even gave specific measure for each element that was to be used in the mixing of this anointing oil. Well, just as the blending of these various parts produced a harmonious whole, so is the unity of the Holy Spirit, Christ in me, Christ in you, Christ in this brother, Christ in this sister, all blended into one body by the gracious, unifying work of the Holy Spirit of God. That's why you need to understand that unity is not something that is forced from without. That's uniformity. Unity is something that is produced from within by the Holy Spirit of God. And that's why Paul encouraged us in Ephesians 4.3 to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. But the last source of unity to consider in your outline is the leadership of God's servant. You know, one of the reasons why churches are bickering and fussing and fighting is on the one hand, some churches have a pastor, God's servant, that wants to lead, but some of the church won't let him. Other churches are frustrated because they need leadership, but the pastor will not give it. Now, the role model for a pastor and people in the church is laid out in the book of Joshua. The book of Joshua is a book of victory and success. It is a story of how a people entered into the promised land. They defeated every foe. They turned every vision into reality. But do you know how they were able to accomplish that mighty feat? Listen to Joshua 1, verses 16 and 17a. And they answered Joshua, saying, All that you have commanded us we will do, and, whatever, and wherever you send us we will go. Just as we heeded Moses in all things, so we will heed you. I am convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that whosoever and whatsoever, that if there's any potential strife, any bickering, any fussing, it can be ended in any church if that church will make one key decision, and that is to follow the leadership of God's anointed servants. Everything rises and falls on leadership, but some leadership rises and falls on followership. So if there is no followship, everything fails. In my last sermon, I noted that God has chosen flawed, imperfect men 
to oversee his body of believers. When Joshua was considered, do you think there were some that believed that there were more qualified men than Joshua? Do you think there were some who believed that their own discernment of problems in the community was clearer and their solutions were better than Joshua's? The same continues in the church today, but these men then as now were not chosen, not called, nor anointed to that office. And God knows no surprises. He knows the beginning from the end. He knows all men. It's God's choice, God's grace, and God's plan. Honor it. It's God's authority. He allows that authority to vest in chosen men. But when you defy that authority, you are defying God. And you may very well be opening up yourselves to the dark side. Third in your outline, consider the blessing of unity. Well, here David not only compares unity to oil, he compares it to dew. Verse 3 states, It's like the dew of Hermon, descending from the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Now why would David use dew as an example of unity? I kept asking myself, what do do do? Why is dew so special? Well, in that hot Mediterranean climate, dew is absolutely vital to plant life. Dew is like a refreshing lotion that God sends to lubricate that dry, parched land there in the nation of Israel. You know, we even have a saying here in America that says, it's as fresh as the morning dew. You can get up in the morning, especially on a golf course, And you can see that dew on the grass sparkling like a million diamonds in the sun. It's so refreshing. You can almost smell it in the air. Well, I want to tell you, in this day of disgruntlement, division, dissension, and disagreement, unity and harmony are like the morning dew on a parched and dried land. Back in the days of David, and even still today in some parts of Israel, farming is done on a dry basis. As a matter of fact, it's called dry farming. There was no irrigation back then when this psalm was written, and very little rain. Farmers were totally dependent on the morning dew to water their crops. Those farmers in the lower part of Zion were very grateful for that life-giving dew. In the absence of rain and with no irrigation, there was no more beautiful sight to the Hebrew farmer than that morning dew that he knew was sent by God to water his crops. That dew meant food for the table. And when that dew would come, there would be great rejoicing in that household. Listen. There is nothing sweeter than the dew of heaven's grace, God's power, and the Spirit's unity when it falls on a church. And some of you may have been involved in a division in another church in the bitterness that flowed from it, and you know what it is to rejoice in the blessing of church reunited. You see, the dew makes the land green. It makes it fertile. 
It makes it fruitful. It increases productivity. And dew gives the land its greatest potential to do what it was created for, and that is to be fruitful for its creator. And what dew does for the land, unity does for the church. I was reading some years ago about Canadian geese. And a naturalist studied why geese fly south or north, flying in a V formation. Who hasn't seen a flock of geese flying in that formation? Well, the naturalist discovered why they fly that way. And research revealed that as each bird flaps its wings, it creates an uplift for the bird immediately behind him. And by flying in this V formation, the whole flock adds at least 71% greater flying range than if each bird flew on its own. And so likewise, when a people come together with a common goal and in a sense of unity, they can go farther, go more quickly, and have more success than they could traveling alone. Furthermore, if they discovered that whenever a goose falls out of formation, it suddenly feels the drag and resistance of trying to do it alone, it quickly gets back into formation. And it takes advantage of the lifting power of the bird immediately in front of him. All of us, perhaps, many of us have experienced where we step out on our own. We sense that drag, that resistance. We want to get right back into the path that the Lord has laid out for us. You know, if we had the sense of geese, we would stay in formation and we will continue to stay headed the same way with others who are headed in that direction. Now, when the lead goose finally gets tired, he rotates back in the V and another goose flies to take his place. And I think that's why we need to learn that we should rotate our ministry leaders on the more difficult jobs. Some ministry leaders can't get replaced in this, so they stay in the same ministry year after year after year. Now he also discovered that the reason why geese honk, you know, they honk because they're encouraging those up front to keep up their speed. And by the way, be careful when you honk at another goose. Make sure that it's a positive honk and not a negative honk. And you know, finally, when a goose gets sick or tired and falls too far back, two other geese fall out of the formation and they follow it to help it and to protect it and to stay with it until it's able to rejoin the formation and get back on the path. If we could just have the sense of geese, we could stand together just like that. Now, in closing, listen, unity brings life. Unity is life-giving. The dew of Hermon brought physical life, and David says unity has the same benefits to God's people. It's life-giving. It's refreshing. People in churches will wither and wilt in environments that are not drenched in unity. Division dries out things, and it brings death. But people in churches thrive and grow in the midst of unity. Because in the midst of unity, God pours out his blessings. 
And when we live together in unity, we're getting a preview of all eternity. We're getting a preview of heaven. When we're united, we begin to experience the joy and the blessings and the life that we will have in the presence of God forevermore. That's why unity looks good, tastes great, sounds right, because unity is a preview of heaven. My wife gives me a few ideas, and she's absolutely right. You know, we're not a perfect body of believers. But that's what the whole example of the geese was. They respond united. Someone falls out of the formation because of this or that, and there's support that goes to that geese or goose. You know, the whole idea is that we are striving to be united in Christ and to be one in Christ. That doesn't mean that things don't fall through the cracks in the woodwork. That doesn't mean that every single person suddenly comes on the radar of somebody and they're lifted up and they're helped. It should be that way. But the reality is, it just tells us if we miss someone that needed support, if we miss miss someone that needed extra something or other, that we have to simply be more united and obedient and submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ because no one, no one should ever fall through the cracks. That wasn't in my, in my notes. I thank my wife for telling me that, you know, we can always criticize anybody. But the solution, the solution is to cover all the planks, cover them. And the solution is to become unified under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He's the author. He's the one that tells us how we should do things. Pay attention to the light. Not in your own power, but under the Spirit of the Holy Spirit motivating you. So I, I'll leave you with just these thoughts. I never want you to forget how to, what a big deal this really is to God. And I don't know if you got that sense from the sermon. But it goes, you know, you, you have to understand that God went through an unimaginable feat of sending his son to die on the cross. Why? So that we could become united in him and united to one another so we would become more and more Christ-like and Christ-like people. The more Christ-like you are, the less likely you are to not see the need of your brother or sister. That's just how it goes. We have to be united in him and united to one another. Disunity is a disgrace to the cross of Christ. Yes, we have example of disunity but we'll always be imperfect this side of, this side of the, the rapture. Amen? You know, if you want to live a life that's pleasing to God, then you have to live a life that's devoted and committed to unity with God's people. You have to refuse to be the negative voice in the body. You have to consider Proverbs 6.16 and 17. Well, Proverbs 6.16 says, those six things that the Lord hates, or these six things the Lord hates. And then when you get to verse 19, it tells you one of those things, and that is he hates the one who sows discord among brethren. The fact that this body may be imperfect. And someone wants to highlight that imperfection without ever giving the submission 
that they are required to submit to the leadership and the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He's just hammering discord. That's not a viable solution. You know, God is one. He brought us together and the fact that the Father is all in all of us. That's what makes us brothers and sisters and ultimately this unity has to grow out of our relationship to God. If you have a faulty relationship with God, you're going to have a faulty participation in the unity of the body. Period. Well, I'm going into another sermon. So I will see you all next week. Amen.